Let me uh, welcome uh, uh, another guest, uh, a really good friend, and it's so good to, to see you. Uh, Bill Fletcher uh, is a long, long time racial justice, labor, international activist. Everybody knows Bill. Uh, one of his many, many books, uh, including uh, took a foray into uh, mysteries uh, just a couple of years ago. Uh, but uh, one of my favorite titles, Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions and, and uh, also Solidarity Divided. I tried to get him on yesterday, but uh, Bill, Bill learned his lesson about, about doing stuff on election day. And you were just like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Right, Bill? No, that's exactly right. I don't do elections. You know I mean, I vote. <laughs> Smarter man than I. I watch Star Trek Discovery because it's like it, the anxiety kills me. But the day after an election, I'm ready to rock and roll. And that's yeah, how yeah. I feel now. You know that, that that Elise is a fellow Trekkie, right? Of course. You guys, you guys have the whole. There you go. All right. All right. Absolutely. All right, As so my Klingon ancestors would say, Kapla. That's a, we'll do we'll do another show on that whole thing. But listen, let all me right. so so, so get, let, lay some truth on us. What what are we uh, what are we looking at here? Um, we well, it it didn't turn out to be a blue wave, but it looks like yeah. Biden won. Uh, if everything goes right. I think we're looking at uh, millions of people decided to vote against reality. And I think, I think we have to face that. And I think that we have to step away from what I've already seen, a number of people throwing uh, most of the blame that things didn't work out as well as expected on the leadership of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And while I'm not normally known as a defender of the leadership of the Democratic Party, I think what we have to face is something a lot of us on the left have not, and definitely in the labor movement, there is something called a right-wing populist mass movement that has an armed wing and millions of participants, and they're out there, and they have a completely different context, uh, concept of reality than we do. For them, there is no COVID crisis. It's just a bad flu. For them, the allegations against Trump around his disparaging uh, the deceased servicemen and women is nothing but uh, uh, fake news. Uh, the fact that he may be, what, $400 million in debt and isn't explaining to whom he's in debt, all of these things are irrelevant as far as these folks are concerned. These are people that are not going to be talked out of this through good messaging, through cute commercials, through a little, you know, uh, hug and feel. I mean, these are people that have descended into the depths of hell. And we've got to face that and deal with the reality that some of those people are our own members. And we've got to step away from this, try and explain it away and blame it all on, on neoliberalism. People made choices in the same way that masses of people in Nazi Germany made choices. And we should stop excusing it. This is a horror. We've got to confront it. We've got to out-organize it. We've got to smash these people nonviolently. I see a lot of nodding heads. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just open it up here. I know Alan. I saw John. I think Elise. But uh, let's uh, let's let's rock and roll here. Thank you, Bill. Uh, my first reaction to that is, how do we face it um, inside the labor movement and outside? Um, can can we can they be talked to? Um, can this be solved through conversation? Um, what, what are some strategies? Cause I completely agree. Um, but just how, like, how do we face it moving forward? Uh, let me, let me, uh, let, while, while Bill is cogitating on that, yeah. uh, let me get our labor historian there. Uh, Leon, you got thoughts? 
Well, I, I agree with uh, uh, Bill. I mean, I think there are different arenas uh, for us to maybe consider. And uh, one is uh, uh, what uh, you might call the cultural question. I mean, it, it has to do with um, uh, how people identify, how do they see their own uh, American identity in what kind of national framework, what kind of uh, national, international, racial, uh, class uh, framework. I mean, these are all kind of competing and overlapping um, identities. Uh, I think that's one whole arena that we, which worth our uh, discussion. Another arena, I mean, that I was um, thought a little more for uh, joining the conversation just in terms of the immediate aftermath of the election is um, assuming um, Biden um, steps into the presidency um, with this um, uh, in, in, a, in a very weak um, uh, position in terms of the, the, the larger national government. Um, what do we think he should do and what do you, we, we think um, workers and the uh, labor uh, movement should and can do, the progressive movement more generally, what can we do? And I think there are, um, uh, uh, I, I would just to jump in to try to be um, uh, provocative for the uh, moment. Um, I think that obviously it's going to it's it's likely to be in the executive and regulatory arena that um, he's going to have the possibility of making doing having meaningful um, uh, taking meaningful initiative. Um, but perhaps the aside from what Biden can do is what he can not do, and by that I mean um, that I think that the slogan um, uh, for the Democrats should be should he should take the um, adopt a slogan of the um, the Seattle Seahawks in the uh, NFL right now, if you're following, um, the big slogan is let Russ cook, referring uh, <laughs> to quarterback Russell Wilson. Um, and um, let Russ cook. That, that's basically what the Democrats need to do is let California and some of these other blue states cook. Let them take the initiative. And what the president can best do, what the Democrats in control of the executive authority can do is to stop, stay out of their way. Um, stop the use of preemption or federal authority to step in where lay, th there, there are plenty of areas in the country now that can take advantage of the political authority of uh, labor identified political administrations. They need to push that, um, you know, to a way in which we haven't seen attaching all kinds of labor um, and uh, 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 worker welfare measures to legislation. So Leon, but before we go back to Bill, we got Jean actually, uh, and Jean, I wanna bring you in on this because uh, uh, Jean, I think wants to actually uh, maybe be, uh, has a different point. Uh, Jean, are you there? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm on, I just can't get my video on. That's fine, we can hear you. We can hear you, Most turn me off. Uh, I want to disagree with this idea that you can't deal with the uh, that you can't deal with the, the Trump people. Even if you can't, you have to. I mean, what are you going to do? Put them in concentration camps? There's like 47 percent of the population, you know. So whether whether it's possible or not, it has to be done. They have to be convinced to come over to to the working family side. Bill. You know, it's an interesting thing. Um, I think that I, I want to respond to two things. The last point and actually the very first point. 
and I agree very much with what Leon was raising. Uh, it seems to me that we have to come to grips with the fact that pretty much 25% of the electorate are zombies. Um, and and if you if you really look, think, okay? no, really, I'm holding no, back no. now. Okay? No, 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 it's true. It I've I've studied zombies. I have a doctorate in zombies. Right? <laughs> and and one of the things that I've understood about zombies is that once they become zombies, they lose their humanity. There is no going back. They don't become humans again. And if you look at the electorate, about twenty five percent of the electorate is consistently and sickeningly right wing and will not change at all. Now, does that mean that like, so let's say that there's another 10% or so that are on the verge of zombieism. There's people that you can deal with tactically, Gene. Uh, and I was talking with a, a friend of mine in Oregon earlier today about this. who was talking about how he has been able to work with some Trump people to do some organizing, basic union organizing. But he, he cautioned and said, the problem though, is that when you get beyond that, that's where the divisions start to become very evident. So yeah, Gene, I think that at a very basic trade union level, we obviously have to work with these people. We can't take them out of their misery. You're right. But the reality is that we need to be focusing much more on the 70% of this country that actually is in touch with reality, even when we disagree with them. We've got to be moving people and shifting the discussion as opposed to seeing more and more people uh, subsumed, being subsumed by zombieism. And that's my worry, that too many of us have looked at this as an individual task or worse, that we try to down, and this is what I would argue has happened in AFL-CIO since 2016, to demobilize, to downplay the, the need to take on race and right-wing populism, to see that as being divisive, and, and to try to find some common ground. There is no common ground at a strategic level. We've got to take these folks on. We've got to have a fight. And we got to be not, we have to step away from this fear that white men are going to run out of the room screaming insanely when we start talking about race and gender which I think is the dominant discourse in the leadership of organized labor. This absolute fear that white men will run out of the room screaming, never to return. I think we got to get away from that. Let me bring uh, John in because I know, John, you've been doing organizing, I think, among some of the very people that are being talked about here. And then I do want to bring uh, uh, Peter in because I'm, I'm, I mean, a lot of this is very koan sounding to me, but go ahead, John. I was just going to say, you know, I, Bill and Gene, I really agree with both their points. And I just, I had an example. We had a campaign at a shop about two years ago. It ended up falling apart. But one of the main people that got that campaign going in that shop, um, he's a member now. And uh, his two favorite presidents are FDR and Reagan. And, <laughs> and so when I talked to him, every time I bring up a point about like the labor movement or voting, he shifts the goalposts. Like one day he's a fiscal conservative. The next day it's abortion. The next day it's, it's guns. It, it, he can never stay consistent. And I cannot have what seems like a rational conversation and get to even a baseline. Because that baseline, it's just, it's all over the place. And um, he was one of the people that when we first organized this shop, 
Um, you know, he had a driver's license, he had certifications, he had all these things and the willpower. And he seems like one of the most, the most kookiest people there, you know, like, and I, uh, and that's what we're facing constantly with these people now. So I actually wanted to go to, uh, well, let me go to Elise, but I want to bring Jeremy because Jeremy, I know you got members in the same, you've had these same conversations uh, on your show, but uh, Elise, uh, I know you would want to jump in on this too. Yes, and I'm going to have to jump off after this. Okay. But I didn't want to say this. I think it is really important, the work that you all are doing. This, this podcast, all the podcasts that are happening, because there's not an alternative voice out there strong enough to give people another message than what they're getting, what they're getting from television. And it's not just white people getting it from television, it's black people getting it from television, brown people getting it from television. That's where they're getting their information from. And all of that is skewed by the corporation that own them. It is, and, and this is what Donald Trump and his enablers have been very effective at. Race is a, is a political construct. Mm -hmm. It's not a biological construct. It's not a social construct. It was constructed explicitly to keep the working class divided. And Thank Michigan you. is a perfect example of yep. that. Yep. When, when, when they announced that Michigan had gone right to work, I was sitting in Detroit Metro Airport. I was reading the newspaper because, of course, I still read. And somebody, this guy, white guy across me was reading his newspaper. And I didn't, I didn't notice him until I lowered my newspaper to look up at the screen. And he did the same thing. We both looked like, what the? <laughs> Michigan, right to work? How could that be? It has been a concerted effort. And Fox News is one of the biggest enablers of it to keep the white people in the out parts of Michigan, which has been conservative. That's not like anything new. Divided from the center cities where the African-American populations are concentrated, mm -hmm. right? And I remember being home visiting one time and it was New Year's Eve and no, I was someplace else. <laughs> but so wherever I was, they had Fox News on and they had these two ambulance, white ambulance drivers sitting in their, in their truck with the lights going off. And they said, yeah, we're right here outside of where the post office is on 4th Street in, in Detroit, which is five blocks from where I grew up. And, there, and there's guns going off everywhere. It's just, it's just, it's crazy. We don't know where to start. And I thought, uh-uh, you're in Detroit, Michigan on, on New Year's Eve, when midnight strikes, you're gonna hear guns go off. Because that was our tradition. Boom, boom, boom. And my father, we had one gun in the house. My father said, you don't take it out unless you aim to kill somebody. But every New Year's Eve, he went on the back porch and at midnight shot the gun off as everybody in my neighborhood did. They knew that. But they made it sound like, oh, Detroit. Oh my God, there's a gun going off. I'm like, motherfuckers, please. This is a lie and you know it's a lie. But they're putting it out there as if it is the truth and this is the way it is. So all those white people out there go, go, that's right. It's crazy in Detroit because black people lost their minds. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they so, got guns. We have, all, we have that image to work with and that's what keeps Detroit divided. It keeps Michigan divided. And so you have these people voting for Donald Trump when they know it. They would poison them as soon as they would poison us. Thank you, family. I'm Elise, thank you so, so much. Wonderful to see you. All right. Elise Bryant, Coalition of Labor Union Women, and also many other things. Ben Blake, uh, you you know uh, what they're talking about, too. I mean, that's, I, I hear you. I see you. I know you had your hand up, but I know you have a similar experience. I lived in Detroit many years, and I, I or about seven years, and I absolutely agree with what Elise said. New Year's was a day to show that the community was armed for self, you know, in self-defense, that it was a signal that basically, you know, it, it was a positive signal, you know, 
I mean, it's a celebration, but it was also a signal. And uh, um, <clears throat> I did want to comment on um, the, the concept of working with extremely conservative slash racist uh, workmates. Uh, basically, you know, I come out, you know, socialist tradition. So the what we try to do was use, uh, it was very much like the fellow from Michigan's talking about, you use, say, if a worker is very conservative, maybe even <laughs> overtly racist, but is pro-union. So you try to use the pro-union aspect against the racism. You know, uh, I'll give an example. I worked in a steel mill. The guy who trained me how to operate a crane was a raving racist. Used the N-word all the time, constantly. And so, well, you do little tricks like you go, oh, well, you know, why don't you go tell Joe down there, you know, use the n-word in front of him you know the you know strong black man one of the strong black men i work with and of course he's like oh no i'm not a racist so i wouldn't do that blah 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 and, and you make the point about the hypocrisy of using the n-word privately among white workers but not openly with black workers because you know they know the consequences of that but he was his parents were irish irish catholic so i would talk to him in the crane when he was training me and say well, why did the North in Northern Ireland, why did they call it the Civil Rights Movement? Where did that name come from? And I asked that, him that question. He didn't know. I said, that came from our Civil Rights Movement, the respect that the Irish nationalists had, and IRA uh, provost, uh, you know, had for um, the American Civil Rights Movement and seeing the beginnings of that Civil Rights Movement, modeling themselves after the American Civil Rights Movement, and you can see a light bulb go on, you know, with him. But now that doesn't, it's like the fellow from Michigan said, that doesn't last. You get a light bulb, it goes on for a couple seconds, but you have to consistently make the arguments, but also bring them to act action, you know, like through struggle together, black and white. You know, it's the old traditional socialist approach, black and white unite and fight, um, which today is kind of obsolete in some ways because the young generation is so, much more anti-racist than say my generation. But the other thing, um, when I worked in the, I worked in Teamsters, you know, local seven, I, uh, I don't know how, you know, nobody believe all this shit. But anyway, I worked in 705 in Chicago. Um, you know, we were organizing uh, in the UPS Teamsters, uh, this is for the International Socialists. And um, <clears throat> I was in 705, I was in the local portrayed in the Irishman, it was a mob local, stone cold mob local. Um, we had a campaign to uh, get elected union stewards, and you had to do that in a vote in the union hall, two-thirds vote to change the bylaws. So we organized that. We, got, we thought we'd get 10 people. We got like 100. So we couldn't believe it. We were totally unprepared. It became a fiasco. We lost the vote because they fixed it. But I, one of my coworkers who I talked to earlier who had been in a demonstration in Marquette Park, if you've seen Blues Blooders, the film, Mm -hmm. where they have that Nazi, that's Frank Collins. That guy was a real guy. He wasn't a comic figure. He was terrorizing black workers going through the Marquette Park neighborhood in South Chicago. We as socialists organized a march into that community and we got the crap kicked out of us. 12 of us went to the hospital. It was a really, it was, a, it was partly, I mean, our fault because we weren't planned and prepared. But later I found out my coworker at UPS, I was working side by side with him on a sort slide at the Franklin Park UPS hub. And we got to talking and he was on the other side. He was throwing beer bottles and bricks at us 
you know, but his background was Irish. And later at that union meeting where we had elected stewards, he came with his Irish shillelagh to defend me. And he followed me around to make sure the mob, you know, he was going to defend me against the mob in that union meeting. Now, he was, by all accounts, you know, very racist and stuff. But that's the kind of thing that you can win people over, uh, to, white people, to become anti-racist. Well, Ben, so I want to go back to Bill and get Sorry. German and then as also because, you know, I think this is, this is the conversation, Bill, and, and you're a longtime educator, you know, in, in all kinds of ways. And, and you know, I, I, I think you're only maybe half joking when you talk about zombies. I think you're probably serious as a heart attack. I mean, what you, I want you to say what you mean by, by that because, you know, one of my best friends is a libertarian. And I got to tell you, sometimes I just, I, I mean, we'll be having a conversation. I'm just like, okay, we are done here because he's my best friend. I love him in a lot of ways. But I'm like, you know, you believe, you believe this thing that is not true. And I ain't going to convince you and you ain't going to convince me. We need to move on. Right. And so I, I want you to, I think a lot of us are having these kind of, whether they're personal or professional conversations. When I look at that map of America, I, you know, Lisa and I were joking today. We, you know, this country just needs to just break up into the different countries. And, and then, you know, <laughs> um, maybe we really do have two very different countries here. Well, we do. And we've had since the very beginning when this uh, country was settled. Mm -hmm. um, and the whole mentality of the settler state uh, that we still have. And Trump, what Trump has successfully done is, I like to say, he's pulled the picture out of the closet, the picture of Dorian Gray. And so we can all look at it, right? We see it. We see it in all of its ugliness. Uh, but he, you know, he, he's quite proud of that. Um, so let me just be clear, as someone who is constantly doing racial justice educational programs for unions, um, I believe very much in member education and engaging our members in debate um, and, and hoping to win them over. And I'm actually optimistic that we can win most over. What I'm identifying though is that there are people who it's not, they don't have inconsistent ideas. They now have consistent ideas. And those ideas are very shaped by right-wing media. And those ideas are um, antithetical to solidarity, to internationalism, to class consciousness. To the extent that they have class consciousness, it's along the lines of classic worker races like um, the man whose name I'm, I'm forgetting who was the head of the uh, Siemens, Siemens Union of the Pacific, um, Andrew Firth, uh, who uh, if you would read some of his writings would sound like a Marxist until he started talking about Asians. And then he was a complete white supremacist, right? Uh, and so I think we have to understand when the debate ends. And it relates to your point, Chris, that sometimes you realize, I, I, was, I did a program in Seattle a couple years ago that the uh, Washington State Labor Council sponsored on race and labor. And at the end of the, um, the program, this white woman came up to me and she claimed that the opening panel had attacked her and other white people. And I kept asking, well, how did it do this? And, um, and she couldn't really explain. She just kept repeating. She was being attacked. And at a certain point, I realized 
when I, I was basically testing her by asking certain questions, I realized this was a Trumpster. Uh -huh. And that there was nothing that I could argue that was you going not, to shake her. It was no. not a conversation. No, exactly. And I realized the conversation needed to end when she said to me, well, you don't have to get violent about this. <laughs> now, for, for a white woman to say to a black man, anything about violence, yeah. the name Emmett Till oh, yeah. starts blinking in your oh, head, yeah. right? Oh, and yeah. I, I said to a friend of mine, I think it's probably time for us to vacate the premises, right? Um, but it was, it, was, right? it was exactly. It was very clear that the discussion was over. And, 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 and I guess what I'm thinking is that there's a lot of very good progressive people that spend an inordinate amount of time on hard right-wing people that we want to believe can be won over. We really want to believe that there's a way we can touch them with reality and all of a sudden they will put their arms around us and say, my God, Alan, thanks so much. Now I understand what you've been saying. Right. And the problem is that doesn't happen. See, this is why I said there was a zombie test before the election. And I'm gonna shut up after this. This is a very simple zombie test. You ask someone three questions. All right, now, you ask them when it was revealed that Trump was disparaging veterans and deceased service men and women, what was your attitude? Okay, right? that's number Second one. question was when it was revealed on tape that Trump had lied to us about the COVID crisis and knew the dangers of it, what was your response? Okay, and the third three. question was when you found out that this man owes maybe $400 million and won't reveal to whom, what was your response? And if someone can't answer those questions, you realize immediately that they're zombies, that there's no point in another discussion. It really isn't. You just back in away. In the face of that, that's it. You back off and you say, <laughs> danger Will Robinson. I got to bring Peter Pocock on this because actually when you were talking, Bill, you were reminding me that in his uh, previous life, uh, he brought exactly the kind of folks that you're talking about to Capitol Hill um, and, and, and did training on, on uh, you know, doing legislation. So, Peter, I'm wondering if you can sort of combine those two things um, and, and give us some response here. And then we've got a bunch of other folks that want to weigh in. Yeah. But I, I saw you kind of lean forward there. You were well, leaning. I'm leaning, forward. I'm leaning forward because, yes, I respond very much to what Bill's talking about. And I'm also going to have to cut out in a couple of minutes. But... Uh, we had, a, we had a program which sadly lost its funding uh, at SEIU called the Member Lobbyist Program. And we were bringing in eight to 12 members of the union who were basically recommended by their locals, but not necessarily, it was clear that some of them were activist types who the local leadership was more than happy to have go away for a few months. And, uh, they would come into DC and we would work with them uh, through popular education methods, Paulo Freire's uh, techniques, to get them started on understanding that the things that they were facing in all the diverse places that they came from were very much um, the same things, basically. And so we had, we had um, an incredibly diverse bunch of folk, including some, some people who were nearly monolingual in Spanish. And we managed to create these incredible teams of people who would 
once once they had been through the team building stuff and had then uh, worked on some education about just how the, leg the legislative process works, they go up on Capitol Hill. And I remember several times that after the first visit, you'd have somebody come out having just met a Congress creator from their own uh, their own district, and they'd say, "What's so special about him?" And the power that we were developing in those folks. We, uh, when we sent them back to the locals, uh, often the local leadership was not actually that pleased with these folks that they had sent out to uh, get out of their hair, and now they were back in their hair and knew how to organize. But the, uh, the, the reality is, was that we found was that it was really essential to get members working with members as much as we possibly could, get them away from um, the leadership that has that has uh, has its own assumptions about who's capable of what. That's gunfire in my neighborhood, which is not a gunfire kind of neighborhood. Um, it's not New Year's. But, yeah, and it ain't New Year's. No, um, I, I think that that I don't have any special expertise in the education area. But my experience at SEIU was very much that, uh, that when working people get to work with other working people on figuring this stuff out, because they were putting together their own programs by the end of this, when they're working with each other on this sort of stuff, they are empowered in ways that they didn't even know was possible. And uh, it was really exciting to see. Uh, we, we went through about seven or eight classes of these folks. And... Um, then we ran out of funding, and I retired, and a bunch of other stuff happened. But uh, it's a it's a, pro a model that I recommend very highly. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate that, it. Thanks for spending time with us. Um, we're going to come to Liam, but I think uh, Evan, uh, Evan, and then uh, Alan uh, had uh, I think questions or comments. Thanks, Peter. So, uh, Bill, I really appreciate your analysis, and I do agree that there's there is a zombie double think going on with a quarter of the population and it's attributable to false consciousness in a way that the class consciousness um, is, is not targeting Wall Street as it needs to. And that's on both sides, on both parties. They're not talking about Wall Street. They're not talking about neoliberalism on the leadership side of both parties. And the idea of like eudaimonic legitimation or eudaimonic legitimacy of rising standard of living for everyone I think that is gonna be one of the ways that we're gonna to need to reintegrate these former cult members. And it's not gonna be directed at the 25%. Everyone needs to benefit from it. Everyone needs a job. Everyone needs healthcare. Everyone needs housing. And the government needs to figure out how to be organized to provide that. And there's an anecdote when Roosevelt started building the TVA in this backward, unreconstructed um, Confederate stronghold that a lot of people hated the government and extremely racist. But as they started getting a, a sense and a taste of modernity, they started buying into it. And as they started getting jobs and some of these other things, and I'm not saying that they should get priority jobs. I think the, the Republicans need to pay a price for this ultimately. Um, but that's, that's just kind of a comment I have. And I know Leon and Jeremy and others are, are trying to get on to it. Did you want to respond to that real quickly before we, we go on? Who, me? Uh, Bill. Okay, all right. Uh, Leon, go ahead. Well, yeah, I like what Evan just said because it kind of fits into 
uh, I was going to try to connect the idea of um, uh, what um, kind of progressives can do in this space with this uh, what I call the cultural question about a class and identity that Bill was raising um, and uh, the zombie question um, because it seems like Evan's point is that um, these people uh, it's they can be confronted directly or they can be confronted by action and uh, like the TVA example seems to me is an excellent one um, like put them to the test about actual um, uh, programs uh, about healthcare, about jobs, um, about uh, labor standards. Um, I think um, then this the bravado or just the um, superficial uh, getting in line behind Fox News. I think might be um, might might break down. But I guess I was going to come back to a question about this because, I, and I actually was going to um, throw the ball back to uh, Jean, uh, who I don't, we haven't met before, but I, I appreciated your willingness to um, say that you thought these people needed to be, um, sort of we need to be in dialogue more with the, um, the Trump um, uh, base. Um, and the question, I guess I was going to ask you how, how you thought that that could proceed. And, and I, I had the impression from what, what's the, the before who, who just left the conversation from the AFL-CIO, what, what was his name? Damon, uh, Damon Silver. Damon, yeah, Damon. Um, I imagine this is a problem that confronts, you know, very practically the AFL-CIO um, uh, has for some time. I mean, it, it came out I mean, both Bill and I have talked about the police union question, um, and mm -hmm. but that's one of the flashpoints. Um, where does where does labor draw the line at its, um, you know, at, at at the dialogue, and where does it where does it have to um, say, you know, no more, you know, we're not uh, we're not mm -hmm. going there, and that we need to stand with certain with basic progressive principles. But I I, I wanted to kind of throw the ball to those of you who are more involved than more than I am um, in the interaction of uh, workers and potential constituents. Um, but so Gene, I wanted to hear more what you would have to say in reaction to, in, re in response to Bill. Go ahead, Gene. First of all, I never said I knew how to do it. I never even said it could be done. <laughs> I just said it has to be done. It's one of those immovable objects and irresistible force things, but it has to be done because we're not going to take them out and shoot them. We are going mm -hmm. to have to unify this working class one way or the other. I don't know how to do it because it isn't just their side. It's our side too. People don't believe in reality. They believe in superstition. They translate, people translate their feelings as logic, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's 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 really very very unfortunate that they don't that there aren't more materialists. But the truth is that we live in a world that teaches us to be superstitious, to be religious, to be uh, to confuse our feelings with our uh, with with uh, with reality. Uh, and, but we are going to have to pick our way through that. And it's not just their side either. It's our side too. Let me get Bill. I want to get Bill responding. Can I say something about, 
Can I say something about police unions? Well, since he well, since hold hold off on the police unions. That's a whole okay. other kettle of fish, and 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 we're onto something right here. Because I also want to bring Jeremy and John mm -hmm. in because uh, both of those guys are dealing with the with the same folks. But go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I think Gene, it's important to make a distinction between uh, ultra leftists on our side of the pond and uh, what goes on in the right. Um, one of the things that goes on in the right is very strong conspiracy theory methodology. Right. And this is true going back to the 19th century. Uh -huh. um, that you look at uh, populist movements generally, but particularly conservative and right-wing populist movements, and this engagement with unreality um, and, and a lack of a real analysis. And that's part of what we're dealing with. Now, I mean, I think that you, to your point, we've got to deal with these folks. Yeah. The question is, how? Um, and, and one of the things I think is really important, uh, it, for me it was very important, was to find out that within the Nazi party in Germany, there was a worker wing. It was led by the Strasser brothers, Otto and Gregor. And they believed very strongly that the Nazi party needed to be the party of the German working class. And they defined the German working class in ways that were obviously anti-Semitic and anti virtually everything else. But they had this notion of a working class uh, movement. And they were very, very upset with Hitler, uh, that Hitler betrayed the objectives of the so-called national revolution and align himself with the Reichswehr and the German uh, bourgeoisie. In, in the right-wing movements, that current exists to this day. There are workers who are uh, very militant and may even sound very anti-capitalist, but when you actually uh, start um, unpacking what they're saying, it's quite dangerous. Uh, and, and, and so I think it's really important for us to be very clear when people have sort of inconsistent views that are sometimes racist. I mean, we run across that all the time. Someone who is a racist or a sexist uh, in their behavior or their words, but they do other things. I mean, we're all humans. There's all kinds of contradictions. I'm not talking about that. I mean, that any, any good, I mean, there are no pure workers out there, you know, pure great proletarian leftists. But what there are are those on the right that have a fairly consistent view um, and some that are advocating a civil war. These are people that are not going to be won over to the right side of the force, Gene. They're not. Now, I'm not advocating violence, but I am saying they are, right? They are advocating violence. They are advocating the annihilation of people like us. And at some point, the union movement needs to face that reality and figure out what the hell does that mean for us? And I want to, and that's why I want to bring both Jeremy and, and John in because Jeremy, I know you, you've dealt with some of this, you know, in, in your local part of creating your podcast was a way to talk to folks in your local. Uh, and, and then John, you've raised some of this as well. So go ahead, Jeremy. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm, I think the difficult conversations are the important ones. And, and so that's what I, I'm, I, I like to use the, the podcast as a way to have those conversations when I have, a willing dance partner uh, on the other on the other side, you know, uh, having 
conversations with myself, I've done them. Uh, they're, they're usually not the most interesting. But, but what Jeremy, you need to tell what you're talking about because we know, but I mean, he's, he's been trying, you've been trying to get folks. Oh, so yeah. So I, I yeah, I, I put uh, multiple invitations out to my membership uh, that were tro uh, pro Trump supporters to come in and change my mind, basically show me the light. And I haven't gotten any willing takers. And, but, and so to, 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 so you guys are talking about uh, on a big scale, right? Like the, what we've seen with our population in this vote. And I want to bring it in a little like to, to relate to what uh, John and I deal with inside our organizations, the, um, the, the members that we have that, that go against everything that we're fighting for. And part of it is in, in my belief, I, I heard it described uh, just recently the what we're witnessing is Trump and his supporters are fueled by narcissism, right? It's a, it's a very selfish, self-centered class of people in our society. And Trump is the ultimate narcissist. Like he was, he was able to, during his uh, four year term, he was able to literally make every single thing about him. Even the virus was about Trump. This thing was created to affect Trump. Uh, like, so every little thing that happened, he made about him. That's like the ultimate, uh, he's like the he's like the crown jewel of of the uh, of of narcissism, and w when you when you bring it into like what what John and I deal with because I deal with the same stuff John uh, has, it's 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 that narcissism that um, I don't I don't even believe like some of these folks I don't believe they give a shit about being in the union they want the pay they want the benefits but there's not like a a union proud connection to some of these people so they've just believed that they're doing us a favor by being here. And I would, they, 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 they would think that they're going to get the benefits and the pay that we get for them on their own. But before they came to us, that was not the case, you know, so they've lived through it and then they get to us and they're like, yeah, now you guys are getting me what I'm entitled to. You know, it's like this whole, so, so I, I'm with Bill that the conversations are like, you can't have a conversation with, with, someone that doesn't want to have the conversation because they have all the answers. They know everything and, and you don't know what you're talking about. And it goes right up. I mean, we see it even on the, uh, with the international, the international pushes out things like for the election. And it's like, as soon as I see something go out from our international uh, on social media, I go right to the comments so I can see members attacking the, the movement that we're trying to get behind or create. And it's like, man, these like they're literally punching themselves in the dick at every step. Mm. And you say that like it's a bad thing, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it's it's like, man, it makes you want to. When John was telling, uh, was speaking earlier, I felt like I was smashing my own head into a wall listening to him talk because I, I have the same stuff. We have the same shit going on here, and it's like. You know, these, these conversations, you know, you'd love to have them and you'd love to figure out a way to get them to see the light. But I mean, some guys just don't give a shit about anything outside of their own little, their own little space. And John and then Patrick. Chris, I'd like to. Okay. Yeah, I, 
you know, you're, you're talking about member education. We actually do a, a four day member education class when our, uh, our members are apprentices. And actually Jeremy came up to one of our classes. And whenever we have this, we have between 40 and 60 apprentices every year when you do this. And by the end of the week, you feel pretty positive that you've changed a handful of them. Uh, like an, an example, we usually try and bring in some speakers and this and that. And so with the last election cycle in 18, I went around the state and I picked out a Latino woman who was a Democrat. I picked out a gay man who was a Democrat. These are house reps. Uh, a female person that represents the, uh, her district is the mining district in the UP. And I brought them in to speak about the labor movement and unions and this and that. And some of these hardcore conservatives, there was this, this gay, gay house rep had them convinced on rank system voting. And, and like these people down from like Battle Creek and Kalamazoo and myself and the agent, we were in the back of the room just laughing because he had these guys wrapped. And I was like, you know, like you get these people out of their bubble and you can, because they're not going to puff up in a crowd, I've noticed, these people. They'll do it behind closed doors. But you get them in this room, and you actually start talking, and all of a sudden, you see their heads bobbing, and you're like, wow, I think I, I, think I got through to a couple of these people. And then, and then they leave, and you see them on Facebook or at a union meeting a year later, and they're right back to it, you know? And it's like, you, they, they're sucked right back into these little bubbles. And I, you know, and it's... Um, I'm not giving up. Like I, about three weeks ago, I got into an argument on social media with somebody that I barely knew from years ago. And I was speaking reasonably and my buddy was texting me and he's like, you're not quitting either. Are you? And I was like, you know what? I've had it with these people. Like I'm not backing down an ounce to any of them until they say they're done. I'm like, I've, I've done it. I've played the nice card and I said, I'm through with it. Like I'm going to make them repeat facts to me or they can like pound sand, you know? And so that's, I'm, I'm done with it, you know? Well, that's kind of, you know, I think that's where we need to get because the, the, the people on our side, uh, that's always the case. We, we, we pussyfoot around for the most part. You know, we try to, uh, we, we put on the baby gloves when we, when we have the position of control or whatever. And as soon as the other side gets control, man, it's like, oh, they don't give a shit. It's all hill, uh, you know, past precedents and and traditions be damned this is this is our house now and this is how we're going to do it and we that's how we need to get we need to get a little more uh, in your face about it i i've i've been doing that a little bit more too because just like you john it, it's like you get to the end of your rope and it's like you know what you want to you don't want to talk you want to you want to throw some hands you know verbal hands let's do it and I think this is part of what Bill's talking about, but uh, a couple more, because we're just about to, a couple more minutes before we wrap up. Uh, Patrick and then Mark, is, uh, if you have something short, uh, but Patrick, yeah. go ahead. I just had a quick question. I mean, given that Labour has limited time and resources and activists all have limited time and resources to spend an inordinate amount of time wondering whether and how we should convince what mostly seem to be working class white men uh, the errors of their ways, does it in some ways not grant them uh, the, uh, does it not sort of validate the idea that they have a pivotal role in the electoral process? This isn't the labor movement of 1970. It looks a lot different. It's a lot more diverse. There's a lot more women. 
I don't think they are pivotal. I think we can win elections without them, as we've shown. I think we can win power without them. Yeah. I, I would say, Patrick, we've got to be thinking at the level of we're building a new majority. And the labor movement that we need to be bringing into existence needs to be thinking in those terms. Uh, we need to be building a broad front, which all are welcome, right? But there need to be certain premises to that. And, and that's where it, it gets complicated. So I think I spend all this time doing racial justice trainings. I'm not doing them mainly with people of color. I'm dealing, doing them mainly with white folks, mixed groups. And it's because I basically believe most people can be won over, but it's a concerted effort. It's very important in terms of building that unity. But when you're doing it, it's going to be complicated. It's going to be heated. It's going to be painful for many people. Because when you deal with the real history of the racial construction of the United States as a capitalist country, a lot of white people become very sensitive because all of a sudden they realize that they've been played for suckers for 500 years. And nobody likes to admit that they've been played for a sucker. And you can either blame the person who played you or you can blame the messenger. And see, part of our job is to really point out to people, you've been played for suckers, now let's talk about why and what needs to be done about it. And if we're on the same page, then we are comrades. Notice I'm not talking about white allies. I want comrades. John Brown was a comrade, yeah. right? He wasn't an ally. I want comrades. And that's what we need to be building within our movement, a movement of comrades.